right, let's get started and uh, go to the Lord for some help. Uh, we've got a beautiful speech that Paul gives here on Mars Hill. It's very famous, very insightful, very profound, and we will learn a lot from it. Father God, now we look to you for insight from the Holy Spirit. You are the author of these words. Word of God doesn't come from the word of men, but it is what it exactly says it is, the word of God. So breathe upon our hearts and minds afresh and anew and bring us life. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So have you ever had your plans changed? Uh, something happens uh, beyond your control. You find yourself in a place that you never intended to be. But looking back now, you've come to the conclusion that it seems very much like the good and perfect will of God. And amazingly, that's how Paul is going to find himself in Athens. It wasn't on his itinerary, on his list of places to go. Uh, it wasn't his idea to be there at all. In fact, it was somebody else's idea, some hostile unbelievers had came to town, first to Thessalonica, then followed them to Berea. The brothers at Berea sensed that Paul's life was in danger, and so they whisked him to the coast, as you recall, and escorted him to Athens. Athens was really their idea of a safe hiding place, but it seems that God was in it. He wanted the Athenians to hear some good news there in the city of Plato and Aristotle and Socrates amidst all those idol worshipers with empty hearts. Here's the message. You can get up off the ground in front of your handmade gods of wood and stone and turn and serve the living and true God from heaven instead and begin to live. And so here in Acts 17, last time we made it from the marketplace where Paul engages the philosophers, uh, they escort him to the big arena. They called it Mars Hill. They named the hill after one of their gods, go figure. Uh, uh, and Mars Hill is the translation for Areopagus, the Greek word that means Mars Hill. And so we, we got as far as his introduction, and we left the body of his speech there uh, as our message this morning. But let's refresh our memories. We'll, we'll back up, and then we'll walk right up to that place and dive in. So last week, we discovered that, verse 16, while Paul was waiting for Timothy and the rest of them to arrive and catch up with him in Athens. He was by himself. He was greatly distressed to see that the city was swamped full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. And a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers engaged him, disputed with him, some of them asked, what's this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, well, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So then they took hold of him 
and escorted him to a meeting of the Areopagus there, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange with the nuance of disconcerting ideas to our ears. We want to know what they mean. They're not smiling, by the way, right there. Uh, all the Athenians and foreigners, by the way, Luke says, who lived there, spend their time doing nothing but talking and listening about the latest and greatest, most newest ideas. And so uh, let's just quickly refresh our memories, verses 16 and 17. The plan was to wait for the team. That's what he always did. But the people perishing right before his very eyes was just too much. No time like the present when people are being led astray into a place of destruction. If you ever need more boldness in your sharing of the gospel, just imagine the unbeliever in front of you, their destiny if they die in their sins. And that should help you do something to point them in the right direction to Jesus. So verse 18, the philosophers in the marketplace find the gospel uh, confusing and somewhat disconcerting, all this talk about only one true God. So they take hold of him, verse 19, they escort him to a hearing on Mars Hill, the judicial center where strange new ideas can be properly vetted and properly uh, censored if uh, need be. So they begin by asking for clarity, verse 20, very polite sounding, but you can imagine their alarm. They've been hearing one God, one creator, who alone rules the world. That would imply that all their gods are nonsense. So they will say, please explain. Verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting there and said, men of Athens, I see that. In every way, you're so very religious. Oh, my word. <laughs> As I walk around and look carefully at, at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. <laughs> we'll pause there. Now, listen, how can you argue with that? Such genius, and God gives us moments of inspiration. And uh, obviously, the Holy Spirit was at work there. And it begins on a positive note, something to just to remember. As I said last week, instead of coming out and poking them in the eye and saying, my word, this is the most pagan city I've ever been to in my life. Uh, he says just the opposite. He says, hey, you Athenians, my word, you take your religion seriously. So devoted to the gods, you've even got one idol, verse 23, to an unknown god, a god you may have overlooked. And goodness me, how disastrous might that be? So way to go, you know? So by your own admission, there's a god out there you bowed before him, you know he's there, you just don't know his name, and you're doing your best to honor him. So I'm honored <laughs> to be able to introduce him to you today. That's so smart. <laughs> what can they say to that? Verse 24, we're in to new territory now. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples built by hands. That's a mouthful right there. <laughs> Opening sentences. 
And he is not served by human hands as if he needs anything from us because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Now from one man, he made every nation of men. The nations are his idea that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. We can pause there because one could preach a sermon, uh, many sermons uh, for a, a year easily on all the truth that is within these simple or so they seem simple sentences. So Paul makes a defense for the one true God, note takers. His speech divides quite nicely and we'll get to all of it. It divides in half. The first half, the nature of God, which you see right before you, verses 24 through 26. And when you hear about the nature of God, it always will bring the second half, the responsibility of man. That's how it goes, verses 27 through 31. So let's talk about the nature of God. So he's saying, this God you happen to overlook is really kind of a big deal. (laughs) So... The Athenians had much on the ball. They had some magnificent accomplishments there in Greece. Um, Accomplishments in art, literature, oratory, math, medicine, history, science, architecture. But imagine having a car that has every option, all the bells and whistles, except missing one thing, the engine. That's what's going on here. The unknown God that you worship, let me introduce you to him. He's the creator of all things, the sustainer of all life, the sovereign Lord who rules over our lives and over the nations he has put in place. That's a mouthful. Now, this concept of one God and one God alone is a hard concept for sinners ruined by the fall to accept. Maybe that is because mankind is aware, down deep, that we've offended the one true God. Now, when you offend somebody, you know, you usually try to what? Avoid them. So fallen, guilt-ridden world in which we live, that world would rather deal with many gods, gods of their own making, than the one God they've offended. So polytheism is sort of the sinful soul's way of distracting itself from the truth that there's a God who requires surrender and moral accountability. So you've got Hinduism and Shintoism in the Orient there, uh, millions of deities. God even had to remind his own people who uh, were seeking other gods. He says, hear, O Israel, And, O Athenians, and, O rest of ye listening world, the Lord our God, the Lord God is one, Deuteronomy 4. And again, he says in his his autobiography, if I could call it that, I'm the Lord, there's no other. Apart from me, there is no God. Before me, no God was formed, neither will there be a God after me. Isaiah 43.10 and 45.5. So, God is not confused. He's saying, you're my witnesses, again in Isaiah 44, verse 8. Is there a God besides me? There's no other rock. I don't know of any other God, 
quoting him. That's kind of funny for God to say, look, I've looked around. I don't see any other deities. You you know, you can take my word for it or not, apparently. And so it's going to be an uphill battle because this polytheistic many gods uh, way of thinking was taught them since they were toddlers. And of course, in the very place, there's this temple that's, that's overshadowing them, the Parthenon, and right within reach are these gods, right? They're, they're standing within the shrines to these gods. So he's got his work cut out for him. Uh, the Athenians had, in Athens, there were three times as many gods as there were people. 10,000 people populated Athens, and there were 30,000 gods and goddesses there in silver and gold. And so they've devoted their entire lives. Everything they do is centered on pleasing these many uh, gods. And so Paul has to break the news. Can you imagine the pressure on him? One way or another, he has to speak truth that will imply that all of these gods are false, and your whole life has been a lie. Well, that, that's, that, that's causing apprehension, I'm sure. Not to mention, back a few chapters ago, Acts chapter 13, he had to deal with people, the Lyconians, who were bowing down before all kinds of gods, who, and in his speech, he called those gods worthless. They picked up stones, they dragged him outside, and piled the stones on top of him and left him for dead. They thought he was dead. Yeah, so you don't think that there's a a lot of pressure on him? Now he's in the same situation that almost cost him his life. The pressure's on. It reminds me of all the pressure on Christians today, believe it or not, in this very country when sensitive subjects have to be addressed. There we are. We're standing there. And and when the subject of when life begins comes up or the issue of human sexuality or gender identity or the depravity of man, the depravity of man just says, listen, you may think you're basically a good person, but you're not. From the Bible's point of view, you're not good enough. Comparatively speaking, you might be compared to people who behave worse than you, yeah, then you could say, compared to them, you're good, but you're not good enough. That's offensive, and all the things that I listed there can bring fierce backlash (laughs) for speaking the truth. In our day, uh, there's no room for just disagreeing now. You will adopt what we believe is true, or you will pay for it. There'll be some retaliation. Uh, And so the pressure's on. He's standing there. He has to speak the truth that all of these gods are untrue. And so I'm sure he was looking to Jesus' promise where he says, listen, when you guys get into a predicament for me and the gospel, he says, remember this. Don't worry about what you're going to say or how you're going to say it. God, your Father, will give you the right words at the right time. Matthew chapter 9, verse... uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 19. Slow my brain down. Uh, Paul, as a man, he's over his head, humanly speaking. He's on the hot seat. But the love of Christ will compel him, and his father's going to speak through him, saving truth. Now, where do you start with people without a biblical worldview? Uh, well, you start at the beginning. That, that's a good place to start. 
Where did everything come from and how did we all get here? I often do this with an atheist. I'll say, uh, I, I, I'd like to hear your version of how everything got started. Where did this all come from? Why is there good and evil in the world? Why do you, sir, do the very thing you would say is wrong, but you like to do it anyway? Can you explain some of these mysteries in life? Is your version better than what the Bible has to say? Nine times out of 10, they have no version. So why not go with what sounds so horrible and crazy about the Bible's version since you yourself don't know? And if you don't know the answer to the question of origin, how can you know why you're here? What is the purpose of life and all of that? And so uh, we, uh, we, we, we bring them to that question because every other question in life, the important ones, all hinge on the answer to, how did this get started? Who has the power? And to whom do we owe allegiance? Is it us or is it God? And God would answer right there and just say, it's not you guys. <laughs> it's me. <laughs> and so, yeah, indeed. And it only takes a little grace and a little life experience to figure out that uh, we're not in control. And when we are in control, uh, things have a way of not going well. So uh, verse 24, starting out here, biblical reality 101. God made everything. God made everybody. And he's the creator of the human race. Now, the Athenians believed that humanity sprung up spontaneously from Athenian soil. And so the world owed the Athenians' uh, thankfulness because all life came from the soil of Athens. Uh, so Paul's going to start out by saying, uh, you say we got here by ourselves. No, you got here by God. And uh, Paul's opening words, a real mouthful. Jaws have been dropped open. They really didn't need to be because at some level, the Bible says we all know the truth, Romans chapter one. But here's an extended quote from one of my favorite commentators, John Phillips, speaking about how Paul opens his argument. The sun, the moon, the stars, the vast reaches of space, the world and all its wonders, the surging seas, the hills and the plains, fields and forests, the jungle lion, the eagle in the sky, man himself, all were made by an omnipotent, omniscient, infinite God, a living God, an awesome, magnificent, self-existing, uncreated God. In one opening sentence, Paul banishes all the gods of Greece to oblivion and all their idols to the landfill, and he does so without saying so. <laughs> Just You just have to hear the truth, and then uh, the implications are as plain as the nose on your face, as we like to say. And so having revealed God's greatness, this is going to lead him to help them start correct, uh, to, to correct their thinking about God. So he's saying, since God is the creator of all things, we better expand our thinking, enlarge our understanding of him regarding temples and shrines. Come on. He's going to say the infinite God who made the universe doesn't need some human contractor to build him a house. That's what he's saying. 
we can construct an enclosure for our chickens, uh, but not for our God, you see. So King Solomon acknowledged that even as he was following the directive to build a temple, he said, who's able to build a temple for God? This is ridiculous. Since the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you, 1 Kings chapter 8. The temple, the point of the temple was for people. It was a point of contact. It wasn't to build God a house where he would dwell because he dwells uh, everywhere. And so... uh, He's saying, let's discard these silly notions of shrines and temples and running around serving these gods and offerings and getting them what they need because our God, the real God, is self-sufficient. Verse 25, he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anything. And if he's pleased to accept our service, it's not because he lacks something we could provide, you see. So, and it's just the opposite, actually, he goes on to say uh, there in verse 25. He's the one who, who, who puts breath in our lungs. Wow, that is amazing. You, you can stop and think about this. He says, he gives you breath in your lungs. The breath you just drew is on loan to you as a gift from the one who created you and sustained your life with the breath. You don't breathe without him saying, in, out. Now, if that's true, and it is, shouldn't our whole life be revolving around him and pleasing him? I mean, he holds heartbeats. He created us. Uh, he created the nations, the whole world. The stars are his. The air is his. The soil is his. The mountains his. Everything's his, 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 including us and our breath then how can we go through a day without even thinking about him? That's an amazing thing. And a testimony of how wicked the heart is, Jeremiah 17, verse 9. How wicked is the heart? Who can figure it out? It's deceitful above all things. It'll lie to you and say, you know, God is a really, yeah, he's a good idea. You know, everybody should have a little religion. Make him a part of your Sunday. How sweet and nice. No. It's a lot more involved than that. He says he gives a breath in our lungs. And then this vast statement and everything else. Health to our bodies, shelter, clothing, food, jobs to work, people uh, to love and be loved by, things to enjoy, purpose, direction, wisdom. It all comes from him, the creator. And he says, by the way, verse 26 is very invested in that which he created. It's not like he made the world and said, hey, I'm making the world. I'm going to check in with you every couple thousand years. You know, you got to do your thing. You know, when you need me, call, I'll be there. No, he is intimately involved in every detail and uh, even with the the nations. He's not uninterested or uninvolved as (laughs) they might imagine. So he's sovereign. The nations are his idea. So Paul will tell the Athenians, God started with one man, verse 26. And from that one man, God formed every nation, commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. So the nations are his idea. The Greeks felt surprised that they were the superior race. They called everybody. In fact, the word barbarian comes from them. They called anyone who was not a Greek a barbarian. But actually, Paul's going to inform them, we all descend from one common ancestor. One writer said this, 
the Bible's revelation that all human beings descend from the same one man is the foundational truth that becomes the death knell to would-be racist ideologies. We all come from the same father and mother, Adam and Eve. You see, so I love what Daniel says. Daniel says, God controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets others up instead. So he's saying, if anybody has a, is seated in any authority or power, it's because God put them there. That's an amazing thing. We don't always like that fact, but you know, uh, because he always doesn't vote the way we vote, <laughs> you know, so as flawed, and godless and off track and corrupt as the nations have become, he is still at work. Glorifying himself, glorifying truth, affirming scripture, offering a plan of redemption, trying to redeem the world, working through the nations. He is in charge and he who started it all, he's guiding it all to its God-appointed end in a valley called Megiddo. Armageddon, Armageddon, that's where we get the word. Armageddon means valley of Megiddo, where human history will come to its infamous apocalyptic close. C.S. Lewis is the one who said, when the author steps onto the stage, everyone knows the show is over. You see, uh, the Lord's going to take a seat on his glorious throne. The Bible says this, the wonderful counselor, the almighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, he will appear and he will take his rightful place on his glorious throne and of his government and of his peace, there shall be no end. And then my favorite line of all, the zeal of the Lord almighty will accomplish this. Amen. Wow. That's our, script, our Christmas scripture we like, Isaiah 9 and verse 6. So now notice this amazing truth that the, it's an implication that he's planted the nations where he wants the nations, and he's planted us in the nation he wanted us to be planted in. Now this implication that he determined when and where everybody would live. Now, your parents, your ethnicity, the state, the city, the country, the hospital in which you were born, and will die. He's determined that. He knows that. He planned it. To maximize your good, he planted you in human history when it would best serve his purposes and mo be most helpful to you to find him. That's what he will say in just a moment. So he chose your birthday, let's say, 1983, instead of 1845 uh, or 845 or 845 BC. I don't know about you, but I'm super glad that I got born in, the, in a modern setting where in America where I can eat hamburgers and pizza and enjoy computers, cell phones, cars, television, and all of this. You know, you flip on a switch and out comes clean water. Come on. You know, I don't know how I would do in the pioneer days. Um, I know how my wife would do. <laughs> she would have the best log cabin <laughs> in the country, you know, and hope. <laughs> oh, oh, don't you even deny it. <laughs> The, the secret's out. They all know. <laughs> they all know. 
you know. So yeah, I'm really glad that because my, my yeah, no, I would never be alive today. <laughs> so yeah, reality check. This great God, the creator of all things, sustainer of all life, sovereign ruler of the, the nations, the one you labeled the unknown God, turns out he can be known. He wants to be known. He's hoping you'll find him. Verse 27, and this concludes his um, speech. Uh, by the way, this, this is a Holy Spirit-inspired synopsis. If you read the speech, it's less than two minutes. There's no way he talked for just two minutes. So this is the gist of it. This is what the Holy Spirit's takeaway <laughs> to give you. God did this so that God created all of this. And he's working in the nations. And everything I just mentioned, there's a purpose to it. That men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from each one of us. That is such a beautiful statement there. And now he's quoting their poets, two of them. First comes Epinimai, uh, uh, something like that. All right, some Greek guy. Uh, for in him, we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So two different poets there. Therefore, since we're God's offspring, like your own poets admit, nothing different from them, what I'm trying to tell you, we shouldn't think of the divine being as gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. Okay, so in the past, God was super patient and overlooked such ignorance before the time of his son. But now he's going to command all people everywhere to repent. For he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising Christ from the dead. All right, so Paul moves from the nature of God to what I said will always have to be um, part and parcel, the responsibility of man. And notice he puts it on us, That's, that he implies something happened. We're not with God. We need to turn back and find him. Why? Because we wandered off. That's what he's going to say. That's the gospel. And so, so here's what he's saying. Since God is all infinite and all powerful, he's the creator, we've got to revere him as, as such. And failure to do so is a, not only a great insult to God, Right, but the highest folly for you because one day this creator God is coming to put everything right. So notice verse 27, and it's shocking to them. He's saying everything I just mentioned about God's glorious way he uh, created and is working and his all-powerful ways, it it's all has this uh, overarching theme. He wants humans that he created to find him, verse 27. So this is where the, the gospel will be preached, where he will say, uh, we like sheep have gone astray, each of us turning to our own way. And how that, because of that one man, Adam, and his one disobedience, he brought sin and death uh, into the equation. And now God has let nations go their way, but he certainly has designed the world in such a way and designed us in such a way that he wants us to turn to seek him and find him. And so, and he says, good news, 
Yeah, he makes it really easy. He's not as far from you as you may think. So, yeah, I mean, what he's saying is Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. What may be known about God is plain to everyone because God has made it plain to everyone. For one thing, he's given us conscience. Secondly, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So from God's point of view, he puts this beautiful, marvelous world and universe together, and he thinks that we'll look at that and conclude Intelligent design must mean there's somebody who is the designer behind all of this. This is what he's thinking. The world and how it works and all its beauty and grandeur, it has God's fingerprints all over it on purpose. He wants us to behold something of, something of his handiwork and make the connection and go, wow, you see, turn around and find him. My doctor was showing me this picture, a scan of my eye, and he was impressed with the workings of the eye itself. And he was marveling, telling me, and this is an older man, telling me about the beauty and the mystery and the design of the eyeball and how it can take light and colors and how it's equipped to take a vision and, and as a lens, it takes it in and then inverts it so the brain can see. And he's just going on and on. And then it pauses and I say, almost like somebody designed it. <laughs> and then what did I get in response? Crickets. <laughs> yeah, moving on, moving on. And so, yeah. Yeah, so anybody, here's what God's thinking. Anyone who beholds one of his marvels, you know, uh, should turn and make the association. When they see a whale breaching or they see a thunderstorm roll through, the birth of some cute baby. I, I knew you ladies would. I just uh, knew the, ooh. Watch the sunset or when we gaze into the night sky the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his handiwork day after day. They continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. You look up, and the heavens are saying, there's a God. There's a God. There's a God. And he's not that far away. And he wants to know you. That's crazy stuff. So Zeus and Ares may be playing hide and seek up on Mount Olympus. The Greek gods had disdain for the inhabitants of the earth, but the maker of heaven and earth, he's near. A popular song a few years ago, you are the reason. I'd climb every mountain and swim every ocean just to be with you and fix what I've broken because I need you to see that you're the reason. Good news, you don't need to do anything like that. You don't need to fix what you've broken because he fixed it and he's near you. How near? Romans tell, uh, Paul tells the Romans uh, how near. The word 
of the Lord. Salvation is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. Confess the truth. Say his name. And eternal life is yours. Reconciliation with the creator. It's only a whisper away. I don't have to climb any mountain, cross any rivers or seas. It's right here. And that, as I've said before, is the sting in hell to realize it wasn't a mountain. It wasn't an ocean. You didn't have to make it to the top of Mount Everest barefoot. It was right here. Help me, God. Done. Cancel hell. Inherit eternal life and the glories and the rewards of heaven. That's pretty amazing. He's made it pretty easy, and that's really the gist of what's going on there. So he says, since we are God's offspring, we should stop thinking of uh, God in lesser terms, like gold, silver, and stone. Verse 29. So here's the thing. Inanimate objects can't give you life. They can't... um, guide you, let alone uh, produce life. Uh, If the living God has given us life, our behavior should reflect that. So he's saying, look, plants can replicate plants and animals can produce animals and human flesh with God's help can produce a human body. But where does the human spirit come from? He says spirit has to give birth to spirit. And God, who is a spirit, Breathed, formed man out of the dust and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul. That's where we come from. So the conclusion here is stop it already. You know, stop carving out silly images, offering to trees, singing to mountains and thanking Mother Nature. Stop bowing down to the, what your hands have made. It's so useless, not to mention spiritually disastrous, and that you are accountable for such foolishness in the light of creation, the general revelation, and your own conscience. You are accountable, and the judge is coming. Let me paraphrase 30 and following, and then we're done. He says, truly, times of these times of ignorance where you can bow down to slithering objects <clears throat> before Christ came God's been incredibly patient he hasn't wiped anybody off the face of the earth look at how he prospered Greece considering all of their idolatry and their their insulting snub to him so his point is hasn't he been good to you guys even though He was the unknown God, you know, that you kept around just in case. But now he commands everybody everywhere, change your thinking, change your heart. That's all repentance means. Because judgment day is coming and God's going to deal with all the idol worshipers. Idol worshipers meaning who put things like money, career, relationships, sex, pleasure, drinking, All of those are idols, too. Selfish ambition, fame and fortune, all of that. We always look down, oh, those idol worshipers. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Uh, So, uh, yeah. Now, I want you to see this in, in the closing. He didn't compromise with the soft gospel. 
you know, but he came out and he spoke the truth and it, it feels like he did it reasonably with sensitivity. He confronted their wrong ideas and uh, he told them God expected them to repent of such foolish behavior and uh, he warned them of the coming judgment. But he did it. Notice this, and this is important to us. He started with pleasant affirmation about their religious devotion. He quoted a couple of their own esteemed poets. That was smart. And affirming. They're like, yeah, I love that guy. Well, even that guy agrees with what I'm saying. Ah, you see? And encouraged them that God was near. God's near to you. He's not hiding from you. In fact, everything he does, he's hoping that you're going to turn and find him. Because he loves you. Ah, do you see how he did that? But he didn't leave out the judgment is coming. So heads up. This thing about not telling people about hell and that they are destroying their lives, that's not um, loving. That's hating somebody. If you know <laughs> that the road <laughs> that they're on, uh, the bridge is out, and you affirm them to go down fully knowing that this will mean their demise, how, how is that loving? It wouldn't it be loving even if they're convinced and they feel insulted by you telling them, hey, the road's out. What do you think? I'm an idiot. You know what? You tell me that again, I'm going to give you a knuckle sandwich. You know what? <laughs> Whatever, right? Well, the fact is the, the bridge is out. They're going to find out sooner or later. So you don't have to become obnoxious about it and lack sensitivity. But Paul is not going to mince words when he knows, listen, if Jesus appeared right now and you're bowed before Aphrodite, doing what they did shamefully and secretively in that temple, oh my word, things would not go well for you. So I'm going to tell you, he's coming. There's a train coming. You're on the track. It's barreling right in your direction. Sir, step out of the way. That's the kind of loving thing to do, but you got to do it with tact, diplomacy, humility, and love. And so, yeah, and so this is what's going on here. Now, he wants them to take uh, action. Now, he's just getting to the best part. He really is going to dig into the gospel. I, every commentator says he's just now, he, there he is. He introduced the man who died, of course, the death is implied there if you have a resurrection. And he's going to preach the gospel, but as soon as he says resurrection, they're triggered. And somebody will shout out here. Let me, let's just finish up here with 32 and 33. A couple comments and we'll be done. When they heard the resurrection word, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear more. At that, Paul left the council. Hmm. A few Became, a few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius and a, mem a member of the <laughs> council there at Morris Hill. Also a woman named Damaris and a number of others, but a lackluster response. Let's talk about that. A couple things I want to mention here before we conclude. The Bible says there are two kinds of people in the world, and that's it. We may see it as 195 nations, 7,000 languages and dialects, 10,000 people groups, whatever that even means. But there's a lot of ways we divide people. God sees all of human history 
And he divides us into two categories. Receptive to the gospel and inheriting eternal life and rejectors of the gospel and standing condemned. Those are the two. And every time the gospel goes out in the Bible, you will see both of these categories. There's one person here and the people on, on this side here sneering and mocking. What did they mock? Uh, they didn't believe life after death, but what really made them sneer was the resurrection says that you, in your body, that body of yours, will be raised from the dead and you will live eternally in heaven or not in heaven. Everyone will have an individual, personal resurrection of the body they're in now. It will be glorified. It will be perfected. It will be, for Christians, a body like his. So it'll be beautiful. But they said, oh, no way. When we're done, we're done. I'm not going to be waking up to a brand new body and live forever. That was too much for them. Now, what I mean about the, the cross divides us into two. And don't you see that picture on Calvary? The cross, two people, two reactions, only two. One repents and says, Lord, whoops, sorry about that. Uh, rem remember me when you come into your kingdom. Today, this day, you'll be with me in paradise. Or, hey, Savior, Mr. Savior, why don't you do, do your job and save yourself and save us while you're saving yourself? Uh, not good, sir, because he woke up in a bad place. But there are only two. There's always only two reactions. And uh, which, which one are you? Which one are you? There's only two. You're in or out. You're alive or not. And I want to close on this, the lackluster response. Now, anybody getting saved is a beautiful response. But what's going on here? When he goes to Corinth, next stop, Corinth, it's less than 100 miles. It's pagan, shrines, temples. They're Greeks. They're just up the road. He changes his entire strategy. Take a look. First Corinthians. When I came to you guys, <laughs> I didn't come with eloquence and all my formal notes and my oratory skills for Mars Hill or human wisdom, wisdom, wisdom on Mars Hill. As I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved, I determined to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus, 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 the cross, the cross, the cross. Where sinners, God became a man. He gave his only son. He laid down his life for our sins. He died for us. He died as us. He rose from the dead to give us new life. That's what I wanted to talk about. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. I didn't have it all together. I didn't prepare a big speech. I didn't have my notes. I was nervous, trembling. My message wasn't with wise and pervasive words. There it goes again. But with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, man, I started talking about Jesus and all of your lives were transformed so that your faith might not rest in human wisdom. So what do commentators say? Now, there's a huge explosion there, and there's the Corinthian church there. What's our takeaway? Debates are good in their place. We've got to have them. And you've got to have moments where the conversation addresses such things. But you rarely debate anybody into the kingdom of heaven. But when you preach the gospel, bam, 
It's the power of God unto salvation. So uh, my takeaway is <laughs> debate less, preach more. Let's pray together. Father God, and, and of course, when I say preach more, you know what I meant, God, that we share just about Jesus more. We make Jesus the focal point and not how old the earth is and what about them dinosaurs. And we just cut to the chase. We're sinners. We're guilty. We've broken God's laws. But you made a way through your son and your love that you so loved the world that you gave your only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the truth that sets our hearts free. Not how old is the earth. So God, help us to focus on, yes, some of these things are important and good and right that we speak about. But let us not forget about what's most important. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.